to really address that very particular thing today at the beginning of Hebrews by looking at, very specifically, angels. Now, we're not going to do a series or a message on angels today. That is next week. But we are going to at least address the fact that angels right now are very powerful spiritual beings that have been seen throughout all the scripture from the beginning of time to the end of time in the book of Revelation. Angels, which just simply means messenger in Greek and in Hebrew, an ambassador or a messenger, definitely has a place in scripture that is mysterious, definitely powerful, definitely they have some sense of extra special relationship with God in the sense that they can be before the throne room and then the next second here on earth ministering to us. They are very unique beings, but they are not all-powerful. They are not God. God is all-powerful. Angels just simply have power that God grants them for that time, for that mission, for that particular event. But I can see the mysteriousness of angels, which we'll look at really in detail next week, can definitely give you a sense of they're pretty powerful and special and really, really, we should be in awe of them. Especially in a Jewish mindset, angels have a very strong position in their spiritual life. They believe that they are protected by angels, ministered to by angels, and guided by angels. Whereas believers, we know all those things are done by God. We don't have angels guiding us. God guides us. We don't have angels protecting us when we have God protecting us. But in the Jewish mindset, angels had this very strong, superior position in their spiritual lives. And so there's no surprise in a book like Hebrews that is specifically speaking to Jewish believers, they better get a handle and grip on the relationship and hierarchy of who really is greatest of all time, who really is best, who really is superior, Jesus or these mysterious beings that we see throughout Scripture that can command armies and devastate nations that we call angels. Now, simply to bring us back up to speed, I'm going to just read the first three verses since they were very short from last week of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the mighty, of, of the mighty on high. Verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Not only did the work that he accomplished in verse 3 superior, no angels can die for sins, no angels have atoned, no angels have been sacrificed, no angels went to the cross, no angels became man in order to uh, live a perfect life and die on our behalf to become our substitute and our atonement. 
only Jesus has, and he's been successful in that, and that success is proven in that he is seated at the right hand of God, a position of power, a position of might, a position of absolute supremacy, of rule and reigning. And we're going to see that throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus rules and reigns as king and is accomplished as priest and is pure and truthful in what he speaks as prophet. And in doing so, God has granted him a name. Now, for the longest of times, as I was a new believer, I always thought I knew Jesus' name. His first name is Jesus, and his last, night, last name is Christ. I mean, that's just kind of just generally how most people believe it. It's Jesus Christ, his first and last name. We know better now. We know better because we obviously understand the word Jesus to mean what? Jehovah saves. Saved. Jehovah saves. Just like the Hebrew name Joshua. Jehovah saves. He's a God of salvation. And Christ means the Greek word Messiah or promised one. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ and Messiah are exactly the same name, meaning anointed one from the Old Testament. So really, the name Jesus and the name Christ are expressive of something that he does. It's describing him. Like you could describe me as Chicago Bear fan. I don't need the name Tim. You just go, oh, Chicago Bear fan. Go, fan of pizza, lover of cheeseburger, lover of sloppers. That's just a descriptive name or title that you'd give someone. So the name Jesus Christ is sort of like the descriptive name of what he does. He saves and he's the promised one. Absolutely. But he's also given something very special in what he has accomplished. I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, because Paul describes that for us. Flip, turn, type it in your phone, whatever, however you get to Philippians chapter 2. We're not going to have it up on the screen to read the verses, but I'm going to read them out of this old-fashioned paper. So I had to turn to Philippians chapter 2. But Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, and the whole of chapter 2 is talking about Jesus being humble, coming as human flesh, living a perfect life on our behalf, and willingly, lovingly doing so. And when he did it, he accomplished exactly what he came to do, which is save his people from their sins. Done. Then in verse 9, we had the concluding statement to the birth, life, death, resurrection, and salvation of Jesus Christ in the following few verses of chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Paul says, Therefore, because of what Jesus has done, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, at the name of God who saves Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished, God has uniquely, God the Father has uniquely looked upon him and bestowed upon him a name that is excellent. 
And the only way in which Paul can describe that excellent name is using that word, Jesus. Jehovah Yahweh saves. Salvation. Because in the end, as we look at Christ, as we, as we read all the stories, as we memorize all the verses about him, as we, as we think about all that he's accomplished and done, everything boils down for us with that supreme, ultimate, dying question. Do I know him as Savior? Do I know him as the one who took my place upon the cross? Do I know him as the one who died for me? It doesn't matter if you know about the feeding of the 5,000 or you know that he walked on water or you know that he rose again from the dead. Those are valuable and necessary and true, but your salvation does not rest on that. Your salvation rests on do you believe this about him? That he came and died and rose again and took every penalty, curse, and anguish of sin upon himself so that you would be free from sin for eternity? Do you believe that he is the Lord of resurrection and life? And so Paul highlights that name. He's the name of salvation. No one can go to the Father except through who? Jesus. No one can have a relationship with God the Father if it's not based on what Christ has done and your faith and trust in him to accomplish it. It's only by that means. It's not by good works. It's not by donations. It's not by philanthropy. It's not by volunteering. It's not by showing up. It's by believing that he is who he says he is and he's accomplished all of the work of salvation necessary. There is nothing left for you to do to gain God's favor or his love. It was never dependent upon your goodness. It's always been dependent upon him. And because that is so highly valuable, that is so awesome, that is so necessary for what we need, that since he accomplished it perfectly, the Father looked upon the Son and said, there is nothing I will not do for you. You have my entire kingdom at your disposal. You are king. And you are Lord. He bestowed that gift of absolute sovereignty in all things to the point that his superiority extends to all of us. Notice verse 10 in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus something would happen. Two things. First, every knee will bow. And just so Paul helps us understand, well, what does it mean every knee? You mean every knee? Every person will bow? There's a sign of submitting to him and acknowledging his kingship. He says, well, everyone that's in heaven, okay, everyone that's on earth, okay, and everyone that's under the earth. He's basically saying anyone and everyone who has ever lived or ever will live, there will come a point where they have to bow the knee in submission and acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is indeed who he said he was, and he is indeed rightful king of our hearts. Now, it doesn't say every knee will bow in worship and praise, or every knee will acknowledge him as their personal Lord and Savior. 
It just simply says, at the end, there will be a reckoning regardless if you are a sheep or a goat, whether you are enjoying eternity in heaven or the (laughs) disdain and displeasures of hell, every knee will acknowledge this fact about Jesus Christ. It'll be impossible to deny that he is the sovereign Lord of all of creation. In fact, he says not only every knee will bow in submission, but in verse 11, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, this is not guaranteeing that everyone is going to be saved one day because everyone has to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Acknowledging Jesus as Lord, here's a shock, doesn't save you. Acknowledging him as Lord doesn't save you any more than acknowledging that he was born saves you. Or acknowledging that he did miracles, that doesn't save you. What saves you then? Believing it. Acknowledging it is one thing. Yeah, Jesus is Lord. Believing it is what makes the relationship real and true and lasting, eternal. You need to believe that he is Lord because even Satan knows that God is God and Jesus is the Son of God and the Holy Spirit is God who moves in our hearts and changes things. He knows who God is and acknowledges that he is God. In the book of Job, he has to come before God in heaven and bow to him and give an account for what he's done for the day. Satan does. Satan knows, but he doesn't believe. You see, it is always a warning and it's always a challenge to make sure that I'm not just believing the stories about Jesus, acknowledging them, but I'm actually believing in him. It doesn't take humility to believe in the stories of Jesus, but it does take humility to believe that he is superior to you in every way and that you are dependent upon him, not just for breath, but for forgiveness. Back to the book of Hebrews. So he has this name that is unbelievably excellent, that eventually all of creation is going to acknowledge that he is Lord, that he is king, that he is indeed who he says he is. And he is far superior to angels because never did it ever say that angels have this place of honor, respect, sovereignty, lordship, and kingship. Never. Of course, it also doesn't tell us that we are kings and lords and sovereign either. But he's building a case here. He's building a case here about who Christ is so that at the end of his argument, we would be left with nothing but praise in our hearts. That we would remove every pretense and every security that we have, every lucky charm that we've believed in, every hope that we've dreamed of, that we would shed ourselves of those things, that we would be bare before God in humility, saying, I have nothing to trust in. You've destroyed every argument I've ever thought of that has power in my life, 
and nothing I can trust in compares to you. And at that point, God says, finally, you got it. You don't trust in what you see or feel, touch, or hear. You trust in me and me alone. So he continues in verse 5 with that idea that he became much superior to angels as a name that he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now he's quoting from uh, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2. And the question is rhetorical, which means it doesn't need an answer. He's not asking you to raise your hand and, okay, here's the answer. None of them, because it's obvious. None of the angels, none of the angels has he ever said of, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And in fact, in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. That's the unique relationship that the Trinity has, the triune nature of God. Three persons in one Godhead. And the angels don't share in that. As mighty as they are, as spiritual as they are, never did God ever say, I'm one with them. Never did Jesus say, I'm one with them. I am one with the Father and the Father alone. Later on in John chapter 3, verse 16, And I think we could all recite this, but because we all learned it in a completely different version, we're going to recite it together with this version. All together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So regardless of the version that you learned, still the same truth. Same idea, same understanding, that God started this entire process because of his love for us. Unimaginable love that cost him life with his only son. His one and only son died that we might have life everlasting. Nowhere did he ever put that type of trust and confidence in an angel, in messengers. Nowhere in all of Scripture, in all of history, has an angel ever been asked to bear the sins of those he loved. Only the Son. It makes him unique. It makes him superior. It makes him the best. In John chapter 15, Jesus also says, As the Father has loved me, so have I also loved you. Now remain in my love. And the reason why I have this verse here is to reinforce not just the oneness that the Father and the Son share, that uniqueness that gives Jesus Christ superiority as God, but it becomes incredibly personal here, doesn't it? It talks about the love of the Father and the love of the Son, and that had, that's an eternal love. It's a love that's not shattered by anything. It's a love that is absolutely pure and good. And Jesus says, the love that the Father has for me, so I've loved you in that same way. So that the love that the Father has for the Son, how much does the Father love the Son? The Trinity. How much does the Father love the Son? To the moon and back. 
I mean, there's not a word or a story or an illustration that I can give you of how much the Father loves the Son. It is immense. It is absolute, eternal love. And Jesus says, that way that the Father loves me is how I love you. Wow. There's times, I know, I have a hard time always filling the void with talking because I can, I can talk about anything all the time. But there are times where I think it's good just to be silent and to be hit with the words because you know what the words mean. You just have to face them time and time again to remind you that he does ultimately and in a very good way love you with an everlasting love. And so Jesus' application to us from that passage, the oneness that the Father and the Son shares, is that we would remain in his love. What does it mean to remain in his love? What do I have to do to keep it? That might be your first question. It's not like you have to do anything to keep his love. It's more or less you are in the current of his love and you just abide there. I abide in the current. So as I see the sides of the, of the creek or the riverbed encroaching me, I'm getting closer and closer, I just focus on staying in him, staying in him. As I'm seeing distractions around me, I think about him. As I think about the temptations around me, I think about him. It's a constant reminder, I'm his and he is mine. Never did God ever say an angel has that kind of relationship with you. Never. Completely different. Not even in the same ballpark or the same universe. As powerful and as unique as they might be, they never have had a love for you where they sacrificed themselves on your behalf. Only the Son. Only the Son. And because of that unique relationship, I don't know if the writer of Hebrews preemptively got to this point, but I think there's a reason why he got to this point, and then he follows it up with verse 7 through the end of the chapter. But he has this moment in verse 6 where he draws our attention to Jesus as the one we worship alone. He's the only one we worship. And you would say, oh, Tim, we know that. I mean, we're in a Christian church. We're Christians. We don't have idols. We know that we worship Jesus Christ. I mean, that's who we sang songs about this morning. But we can never tire of that message. We can never get bored with that message. We can never think, oh, I've heard that before, get on to something new. Because when we are in that mindset, well, there's got to be something new and fresh to grab my attention and to keep me focused, we are in super danger. That is like a warning sign, Will Robinson. Warning, warning, warning. Never think that you should come to church getting something new about Jesus. You should get something tried, true, tested, and absolutely correct. And it's been the same message for thousands of years. Delivered differently, yes. Related to differently, yes. But it is the same message. And I have no hesitation, and I have no embarrassment in saying, you need to worship Jesus Christ. Because that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 1 when he says... And again, 
When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let God's angels worship him. So God says, in this relationship between angels and us, or angels and the Son, the angels bow their knees to worship him. They confess his goodness and greatness. This has only one explanation that I can think of. Now, I I try to be very careful when I preach not to be overly sensational or overly emotional, okay? I don't want to win you through an emotion. I want to win you through the truth. And yes, that moves our emotions and it moves our thinking both. But I never want to be accused, oh, you know, he made me cry today or, or he, you know... I don't want emotions to be what you walk away with from the messages. What I want you to walk away with is a greater confidence that Jesus can do everything he said he can do. That he can do everything he said he can do. And all I need to do is trust him. When it comes to worship, though, there's no way I can get around the real strong emotion of worship. Because in worship, you are not just reciting words. You're not just reciting something familiar to a tune that you like, but it's it's more than that. And I think the only way I can describe it is to use Scripture to describe it. I'm going to read this passage, and whether you turn to it or not is fine. And um, if you want to close your eyes while I read it, to take out all these distractions, that's fine. And I would be the first to tell you, I don't really totally understand everything that's going on in this passage because it's it's truly otherworldly. All right? In the book of Revelation and the fifth chapter, I think I have one of my greatest joyful expectations of the end times that I'll ever experience. I I think being raised from the dead is going to be pretty amazing. I think that's going to be awesome. Um, But I think this next event that takes place in Revelation 5, whenever it's taking place in history, will be the most exciting thing I hope we get to witness and experience. In Revelation chapter 5, and I'm starting in verse 1, and I promise I I will not try a lot of commentary on this because it's self-explanatory what's happening. But I do need to tell you, he, John, the Apostle John, is having this vision towards the end of his life, the book of Revelation, and God is opening up to him lots of different windows on what's happened in the past, present, and future. And that future may be 100 years from John or 10,000 years from John. Some of it may have happened or none of it has happened yet for us. I'm not here to discuss that, but I am here to simply let us get some insight about what the scroll is, because he's going to talk about a scroll or a parchment. And there's a uniqueness about this scroll and parchment that only God can take care of. And I think it is just God's way of saying, if you want the fulfillment of all things, if you want to see the fulfillment of what this new heaven and new earth will be like, if you want to see what the fulfillment of heaven itself is, or the fulfillment of what hell truly is, for that total fulfillment to take place, something unique has to happen. Starting in verse 1. Then I, that is John, 
saw in the right hand of him who seated on the throne, which would be God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, notice a similarity in phrases, to what we read with Paul, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, that's John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll with his seven seals. The elder just summarized what Jesus Christ did for us. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders, I saw a lamb standing. as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. You see, you're there in some way. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, that's John, and I heard surrounding the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I can't help but get emotional with those words, with that scene of heaven, with that little brief window into what every day is going to be like for us in heaven, where we will be mesmerized engulfed 
thrilled with who that lamb is and what he has done and conquered for us on our behalf. They fell and worshipped. Everything that's created that has a voice shouts, worthy is the lamb. And they worshipped. Even the mightiest of angels worship. Even the smallest of children worship. When was the last time you approached God figuratively or literally bowing down and worshiping Him? that would describe Revelation 5 in your heart. You see, we can get into such a habit of even singing good, godly songs. We can get into the bad habit of going, I don't know it, so I won't sing it. Or, oh, this is my old favorite, and sing it without even remembering it. You know what that's like, to sing something and not even remember what you just sang? because you're so used to it? Yeah. It's scary. I can get all the way home and back and not even remember what I got here. How did... That's got to happen to everybody, right? But when it comes to worship, oh, we need to approach it completely different and have the mindset that this is not a small thing you are doing when you stand and lift your voices. It is a Revelation chapter 5 moment where the Father is sitting on his throne, the Son is seated next to him, and you see him as a lamb that was slain. But he's living again because he's conquered every enemy we have. So as our band comes up and we sing our last song, I want you to keep in that that picture of Revelation chapter 5 in your mind. And I want you, as you sing these words, to be driven to your knees, to raising your hands, to shouting glory to God, or to be silent before him. Let your heart be moved by the words, but more importantly, that our Savior has said he loves you with the same love the Father has for him. And it is eternal love. Let's stand and sing.